you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Half dance, half humor, all men. That is Le Ballet de Trocadero de Monte Carlo. And this week on Queer Money, we are excited to share with you the story of one of the veterans of this amazing dance repertoire that is changing hearts and minds around the world with what ballet is and what it means to be a man in ballet, as well as the identity of LGBT individuals. We all love having a good time in life, but that also means that we need to be prepared to be able to have a good time. And one of those aspects is financial. And that's why we are always happy to have our sponsor, Mass Mutual, behind us, because they want our community to not only have a good time, but to thrive financially. We encourage you to check them out. This week, also on Queer Money, we have some questions from our readers and listeners of the show. If you'd like to ask a question and find out about upcoming guests, check us out on our Queer Money Facebook group. All right, let's get on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. So welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. David and I are excited to be hosting Robert Carter of the Trocadero Ballet Company. That's not the fancy name. It's just the one that I can say. There's a fancier <laughs> name. <laughs> but I can't say it. We uh, were fortunate enough to meet Robert at the Denver Cinema Q Film Festival uh, a couple weeks ago. He was one of the stars of a documentary that was featured at the film festival. And we had the opportunity to hang out with him for a little bit. And he was kind enough to agree to come on to our podcast. So welcome to Robert Carter. Thank you very much. I'm honored to be asked. And yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you so Thank much. You. Love having you here. Thank you. So you're a part of uh, an all-male ballet company. Can you give us a little bit of background on who you are and, and what the Trocadero Ballet Company is? Sure, sure. So the proper name is Le Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo, which is quite a mouthful. <laughs> the company was founded in 1974. We are still going so that I can always remember exactly. I know that at least the company is one year older than me. Oh. <laughs> so, but, that old um, bitch. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But um, this company started out really as um, some guys that got together and would, you know, find a way to kind of make fun of the old classic Russian style and not so much the style itself but the stars and characters of dance from yesteryear and in those days when the russians were coming over and everybody in the world seemed to have another bus tour going across the the country touting themselves as the ballet russe de monte carlo because there were so many people that had come through and then split off and done their own thing so we are an all-male ballet company so we do the ballerina parts as well as the male roles and we all have fake made-up russian names that kind of really only make sense in english they're funny just the same you know we have ida never say never we have a pichka melba we have <laughs> so many yeah it's a lot of fun I've been with the company now since 1995. This is the kind of the middle of my 23rd year with the company. It has been quite an exciting ride and it still is interesting and I'm just enjoying it all the same. Awesome. And how did you get 
into ballet as a boy. I never – that to me, I don't even know if that was ever an option. So how did well, you get involved in that? Uh, right. Well, exactly. For most young boys, especially in my case, I came from a – you know, we weren't poor, but we weren't rich. And my father and mother worked very hard. My mother grew up in the fields upstate South Carolina picking cotton. And the way that she tells it is that, you know, she used to look at the plains back in those days. And this was back when Pan Am was still in business and <laughs> so on. And she'd see these planes flying over her head when she was in the fields. And she would always imagine herself just going on to one of those planes and traveling to anywhere outside of her world, which at that time was the church the field and school. That was it. My parents married when my mother was 18. She married my father and they moved to my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, the day that they got married. So my sisters and I were raised up in Charleston and my mother coming into Charleston got exposed to a big community and Charleston had a big arts community. She wanted to give my sisters and I that opportunity to be exposed to those things just as a, a way that she never got that opportunity until she felt like she was too old to really engage in anything promising if it meant to try and involve herself in one branch of the arts or another. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And as a result of that, she I had my sisters and I, of course, in various little community theater groups for kids and so on. And I was at uh, Piccolo Spoleto, which is like the local version of the Spoleto Arts Festival, founded by Giancarlo Minotti as a sister festival to Spoleto, Italy. My dance teacher at the time, Robert Ivey, saw me singing a solo in this little play that we were doing and sent for my mother in the crowd and just asked her if she wanted some dance training to go with my voice. My mother, of course, was open to the opportunity that I was being extended, but she really honestly didn't know very much about ballet and For her, it was just something that she thought it was a nice outlet. She wanted me to try it. The deal was if I didn't care for it, then we would find something else to be involved with. But she wasn't ruling out anything because she wanted my sisters and I to have that exposure and the option and the possibility to do anything that we wanted. Whereas she was limited in her upbringing. I went. I was seven and a half for my first ballet class. And I went. and. I couldn't wait to get back, and it has been my life ever since. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, kudos yeah. To, your, to your mother for having the prescience, I guess, and, and, and letting you figure out what you wanted to do and not restricting you from, you know, I think many mothers, especially fathers, might uh-huh. not have an affinity towards their son going into ballet. How did your father take it? Oh, dear. Well, <laughs> you know, the. Billy Elliot's story is kind of on par with mine. In that respect, maybe not the fact that my father became necessarily the stage dad, like in the movie or the storyline. Yeah, my, my father was slightly offended at the prospect of my learning dance, and only because I guess that was a personal thing to him. My father was the youngest of three, and my grandmother was considerably younger than my grandfather. So when my father was eight weeks old, my grandfather passed away and my grandmother raised those three children. And so I was the only son and my father wanted me to be that, you know, he wanted to take advantage of that opportunity to be the father that he never had. And he had a boy, but 
I was so not interested in almost anything that he was trying to, you know, football or baseball and all that business. I was not <laughs> interested <laughs> at all, which, of course, really pushed him further over the edge because of the fact that my mother also raised my sisters and I with respect that growing up, you know, we had to have respect for our elders, but we were still able to question things if we felt it went against us, you know, instead of, you know, well, what's wrong with me doing that? Mm-hmm. And so my father used to really get upset with that. Yeah, your mother's always let you say what you want to say. <laughs> well, we're not, we're, you know, because he came from that children should be seen and not heard era. Sure. And so it's kind of a different kind of thing going on. But my father was not happy at all. And as a matter of fact, sometimes I think would go out of his way to try and put obstacles in the way for me being able to even go to ballet class or rehearsals and, and whatever. And my mother really put her foot down with him along the way. And then when I got to the age where it was becoming apparent that I was most likely going to wind up in the entertainment business, at least as a dancer, you know, and I was taking it more and more seriously. My dance teacher was very influential in helping me. And he was another kind of side father figure and probably the one that I needed since my real father was so unwilling to really want to understand at the time. It, it all kind of balanced itself out and everything happens for a reason. So if you'll remember when we met, you know, I talk about the whole, I study metaphysics or applied some of those principles to my life and that's how I live. And I just believe that, you know, in this universe, nothing happens by accident. Everything is predestined. And, you know, if you stay in the right line of that kind of energy, you will find where you need to go and things will just materialize as they are needed for you. Is that why you think you continue to find people who sort of led you to your next phase? Like you found the right ballet instructor? Yeah, I, you know, it was meant for us to have shared that kind of a bond and that information. It was important for me and it has serviced me later now in my later years, you know, by giving me that foundation and so on. And aside from that, also because he saw what I'm sure my parents saw and just were in denial, as many of us may find, that I was gay. Mm -hmm. So here he was a gay man and he could see that, but he wanted to be that kind of positive influence that kind of took it away from that stereotype of, oh, sexuality. You know, he wanted to give me that kind of a basis where I would be confident in regular things. And that aspect of myself would not be such a, a big, you know, big deal for many people. If you felt like this is the path that you were supposed to go on, to what extent did you have to muster the courage, especially coming up, growing up in the South? Yeah, it took a lot. Once again, my mother was very influential in in that and being my support system. You know, I went through that teenage phase going into puberty where, you know, people are really identifying with their sexuality and they're really, you know, the hormones of teenagers and, and how we can be and all over the place and thoughts and stuff like that. Yeah, I got frustrated. And there were many times when I, I guess I thought just out of frustration, I would vent that I was ready to just throw in the towel and give it all up and to heck with it. And my mother was always like, really, are you going to let some other people determine for you what you want or what's good for you just because of the way they think? (laughs) And of course, you know, erring on the side of common sense. Why am I going to allow other people to charter my course? So uh, once I realized 
especially coming from the background at home where at least I had that support system. I mean, my father wasn't a complete grumble. He did support me and he loved me and my sisters. He was just stern and, and a lot of other ways. He wasn't bending in some of his thoughts and views. So I had a supportive enough background that, you know, I didn't bend under the peer pressure. I had enough of the positive support with my ballet family and my home family that I made that decision. And so it was never looking back as far as I could remember from then on. When did you go to New York or what came first, Trocadero or New York? Or how did you, how did you find the two? Well, my first trip to New York, my mother you know, saw how interested I was, even as a young boy, in the arts, and I was involved, and going to the studio, and going to plays, and being involved in the local art scene in my hometown as well, in various plays and productions. So, as a gift, she brought me to New York when I was about maybe eight or nine, a little bit, I think I was a little older than eight. I saw the last performance on Broadway of The Tap Dance Kid. And it was with Alfonso Rivero because Sivian Glover was out on vacation at that time. The woman playing Jenny in the production was a girlfriend of another very good friend of my mother's back at home. So she kind of more or less connected them and she gave us tickets and we sat and watched the show and we had a weekend. And I guess remember I told my mom, I said, one day I'm going to live in this city. <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, when kids normally say things like that, you don't really think about it at the time or you may pass it off. But then, you know, whenever a child has told you they're going to do something or something's going to happen and you think about it well after the fact, you know, they always said that this was what was going to be. <laughs> and it was just something that I knew I was going to live in this city one day. So moving along, you know, I continued to dance and be farmed around as I got older because in a lot of cases, I was the only boy, and there were fewer regional ballet companies around my home state, so I would be shipped in and here to do little bits and pieces here where they need a boy. Little do they I, know. <laughs> right. Well, right. So, so around the time when I was maybe just before I was getting out of high school, I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to try and get serious about this, I guess I had already decided I was not going to go to college because, in my opinion – if you're young and you're dancing, keep dancing while you're young, you know, college could be there later. And even though people prefer you go before, I didn't want to miss out on that time uh, of my peak being young and dancing. Mm -hmm. So auditioned for a summer course with Joffrey Ballet School. I wanted to go. My dance teacher at home was not exactly happy because I more or less had kind of done it on my own without really consulting him first. But in the end, it all worked out, and he and my mother both were in support of my going. Edith Sidario at the time was running the Joffrey Ballet School, which she had done for years, and gave me a full scholarship to that summer program. And I attended that summer. And at the end of that summer, they were trying to revive the Bay Ballet Theater of Tampa at the time, and for a brief moment, Fernando Bujones had directed the company. And when he left, he then kind of more or less passed it off to Tony Catanzaro, who had been a former principal with the Boston Ballet for many years. And he was just, I guess, going around and observing at different places in town. And he was standing in the door watching me in class. And after class, he came over, gave me a card and told me, you have a job. 
call me after the summer's over. Wow. Nice. And so I went to Florida. Uh, little did I know that at the time it was kind of like they were trying to regenerate everything. And their previous director had run off with a whole bunch of money and more or less left the company bankrupt. And they were trying to boost audience attendance at the same time of recouping money. And it just didn't seem to work. And eventually it folded in a very short amount of time, which crushed me because it was my first real professional gig. And that was it. So I went back home to South Carolina. And when the Spoleto Festival came back, Later on, I Dancy of Harlem had come through, so I managed to ask for an audition or more or less taking company class with them as they warmed up for the show. And I got to speak with Arthur Mitchell at the time, who more or less put me through my paces at that moment and declared how he was going to have to do a lot of work to fix my technical issues, which I kind of resented. I thought, well, gee, that's not encouraging. (laughs) But at any rate, I came to New York again and was attending the Dance Street of Harlem's program. And they had me in as an ensemble dancer, which is, I guess, kind of like a junior company. And in some cases, if you do well enough, they'll advance you to the company and so on. But it was not the arrangement that my mother and I were led to believe when I came anyway. And so after a while I did that, but I just found that I was not happy there and I left. And my mother and father said, well, if you want to stay in New York, you've got to do something because we can't afford to keep sending money for you to live. Uh, We've got other things going on here. And so a girlfriend of mine whom I had attended Dance Street of Harlem with got me a job working at a hostel hotel. And so after a while, for about two years, I worked there doing the night shift from midnight to 8 a.m. Then during the days, I would go to class and hunt bulletin boards, you know, to see if anyone was auditioning for dancers. But my other big dilemma was that I'm very short. I'm 5'7". And most cutoffs for most companies, they want the guys at least 5'9 or taller. So... I was always kind of screwed in that respect. John's One out day too. I- <laughs> yeah, I couldn't be a belly dancer either. At five four. Well, nowadays, you know, that's the beauty of our company and modern times. Diversity is seen a lot more nowadays in companies than it was many years ago as a standard. So, yeah. I was walking down the street one afternoon and I ran into a guy that I had also trained with at Dance Street of Harlem. And then subsequently, we both worked for Trocadero in the my earlier time with the company. At the time, you know, it was still there was no Facebook and, and email wasn't so popular. There was still the yellow pages and you had to use the telephone, <laughs> <laughs> you know, with a cord, not a cell phone. He said, I'm auditioning it around. And I said, I'm doing the same thing. It's not so easy for me. He said, well, I'm auditioning for Ballet Trocadero. And I about threw him down and, you know, in in my eagerness for him to give me the information because (laughs) I'd seen Trocadero as a boy. So I knew eventually one day that was the company I wanted to be with. It was just who knew? Here I am. This is the moment. So I called up my director, Tori Dobrin, and expressed my interest in coming to audition and you know he was like well you do understand that 
point work is a necessity. And I thought, yes. <sighs> I didn't impart to him at that time that I had received my first pair of brand new point shoes, not old ones that I had taken off of other girls when I was about 11. So I was quite comfortable in dancing on point. I went and I watched a little rehearsal and took warm-up class with them and stayed around for a rehearsal. And he asked me if I could come in another day, which was fine because I was off during the day. I only worked at night. When I came in two days after I had been hanging around and he gave me my contract and I've been there ever since. I just want to pause for a second. You know, we always love hearing stories about people who are doing what they want because they enjoy that and it makes them thrive. We want to also remind you that an amazing 71% of our community, the LGBT community, are concerned about being able to have enough money to live out a happy retirement. If you're a part of that group, we encourage you to check out massmutual.com slash retirement and start thinking a little bit about what will allow you to thrive for the rest of your life. Now let's get back to the show. Two questions for you. First of all, Bobby, mm -hmm. can, for the for those of us who are not... David's not a dancer. She doesn't understand. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't point my toes. Um, so for those, those of us who maybe are ignorant or a little more butch. <laughs> uh -huh. Whatever, it's not butch. <laughs> right, um, right. Please explain to us what dancing on point means oh. and why that is something that someone might call out to you as a former uh -huh. dancer or as somebody who is a dancer, why they may, uh -huh. might call that out and say, you know, you have to do this. Right. Well, generally, dancing on point is spelled P-O-I-N-T-E from the French tip, but it generally refers to dancing on the toes, on the toes, which is commonly subscribed to ballerinas, females. But what I do, what my company does, is we parody, in our case, the old glorious Russian style, the over-the-top dramatic Russian style from the old days. And we're all men and we do this dancing in tutus and wigs and point shoes to parody the stars and characters from, from that time. It is not a common thing. I was fortunate that my teacher did not really limit me from my exploration and my, my fascination with point shoes, if anything, he encouraged that, which was still a very uncommon thing at the time. Uncommon so, for men, right? Not uncommon uncommon, uncommon for Yeah, common for men to dance on point, but yeah. more uncommon and probably a serious no-no for teachers to even promote and recommend it or support it amongst male dancers. Mm -hmm. You know, a big thing, I mean, and even in the history of Trocadero itself, Back in the many early days, you know, there were boycotts. There were people that would cancel shows or bar them from returning because, you know, the sad problem with the LGBT community at large in the world today, period, and the mindsets of many and how they view the LGBT community is that we're all reduced down to a sex act and we're not viewed as people as human beings. And that's sad yeah. because we all know that we all as individuals have so many more interests outside of getting our rocks off. <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> I think, I think, I mean, yes, it's nice occasionally, but that's not, you know, that's not the, the sole purpose to our existence and, and our reasons for being. And so 
Yeah, it's so the company went through a lot of persecution from these conservative types. I went through that. We've all gone through that. And a lot of it is really just fear and ignorance of what something is or someone is about. Was the fear more based in why would a man even want to dance on his toes? What does that indicate? Or was it just a, we just don't do things this way and it's got to always be women on their toes? It's our hyper-masculine society that decrees that men should only do this and cannot go outside of that box as well as women or, you know, there are stereotypes for women as well. But now, you know, with the dialogue broadening, we're starting to include different peoples. We have transgender now, which not that they've never been here. They've probably always been as present as anyone else, but they're being talked about now. So they're becoming visible and they're not being invisible and they're not being devalued. Mm-hmm. Right. What is the message or, or goal of La Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo? I Yay. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Next time I'll do an accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? We are, and my boss says this all the time, and I agree with him. We are not a political company in any way. We are a product of an expression within our community to the rest of the world that sprung up through the fight for civil rights amongst the LGBT community. We don't have a political message, so to speak, but I do think that not that we broadcast this per se in the literal sense, but we show that diversity is possible and almost necessary. And you can do that with a smile and you can bridge the gap of communication through humor and a love of an art form that can bind so many people without having to use language. That's another language unto itself. And it's still something that resonates within us all. And I think that it's very vital for the human soul to have arts going back to, well, what are we fighting for? Exactly. Exactly. Well, I think that'll be the the ultimate achievement when, like when David and I hold hands walking down the street, when Trocadero does a performance, it's not a political statement. It's not viewed as anything other than just men dancing at one point and two men holding hands walking down the street. Whereas right now, it's in some neighborhoods, that's a political statement whether you want it to be or not. Right. Of course, of course, of course. And that's why, yeah. We are not responsible for the viewpoint of others and what they want to project onto us. Sometimes it reflects their own lack of understanding or unwillingness to open up. I'm always surprised when I see people that try to overanalyze and they read so far into something other than just what it is. Right. <laughs> and, uh, right. But if you look at our, at our audience, years ago, of course, when it started, it was considered more risque and there probably was a lot more of an adult edge to the humor because uh, our earlier dancers and, and the founders of the company sprang out of that. You know, there were so many people that were more intellectualizing things and putting it out. We're not trying to make any kind of political statement, but we reach a wide variety of people. And I think that that's our message. We don't have to be for one group or the other, but we are able to reach all of these people. Yeah. So what is wrong with the rest of the world and why it, you know, if it's possible for us to cram so many of these places with a, you know, no, no seat left unoccupied, why is it not possible to just have this in general in society? 
Exactly. exactly. You know, and that was that was going to be my next question is when we saw the film Rebels on Point, mm-hmm. that was the first time I had been exposed to the trucks. And mm-hmm. I was amazed to find out how this little company of I think it was six or seven men from back in the seventies and what mm-hmm. it what it has become today. So there there are a lot of us who are not familiar with what the trucks do today and where you go and the audiences that you are presenting in front of could give us kind of an idea of what it's not just this little company in some loft in New York anymore. No, it certainly isn't. I mean, we've gone from dusty little lofts in the Lower East Side to now some of the grandest opera houses and theaters in the world. In Russia, we've done the Bolshoi. The first time, I'm proud to say that I was part of that history with the company, that the company even went to Monte Carlo, was we were invited on behalf of the Princess Grace Foundation to attend the Diaghilev Centennial Festival. So we were more or less hosted by Princess Caroline of Monaco. Wow. Uh, that's, you know, quite an amazing thing when you think about the history, because back in the day, we go to Italy a lot, and so... Because we are Le Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo, and then they have the Ballet de Monte Carlo, there was sometimes confusion. <laughs> and uh, yeah, a lot of confusion that would go on. And there was a little bit of an animosity, at least from their side towards us, because they almost thought that we were taking the name. And so we were misrepresenting. And, you know, until people figured it out and we garnered enough notoriety and thereby respect, now we are quite well known. And so people would make sure that they wouldn't confuse the two. Right. The country where you're most famous, I guess, or your, your, your biggest fans are from is Japan. Mm-hmm. I would have to say that, yes, the company <laughs> has made a solid sound base in Japan. Unfortunately for the past events that occurred about four or five years ago with the tsunami and the earthquake and so on, which caused, you know, a big disruption in that for us because it was a yearly trip for us. Wow. And so from the end of May until the end of July, beginning of August, I was always in Japan. So I've always kind of considered it my summer home. Oh, wow. And yeah, I have made a lot of friends that are expatriates that live there as well as Japanese people that live there that are friends of mine that I've known for many, many years. And so uh, a little part of, you know, my heart is always going to be for Japan. That's awesome. So can you share us a little bit about the documentary Rebels on Point? What was like making that and what that's all about? Yeah. So Bobby Joe Hart is a documentary filmmaker out of Montreal. She and her husband both produce and make documentary films. And She happened to see the ad for our show in her newspaper and then came to the show because she had never heard of us either. And with her filmmaker's mind, she immediately began to think, you know, how can I get to these guys and how can I, you know, bring about some of what they do to everybody? Because in her eyes, we exemplified everything that she's about, peace, love and unity and spreading that through some medium art. So she was blown away and she spoke with our director, Tori. And after a lot of back and forth and a lot of, he was a little bit reluctant because first of all, he didn't want it to paint the company in a negative light. He didn't want 
you know, for it to turn into some like reality show where they're only showing them the, <laughs> you know, what people would expect a group of 16 homosexual male dancers <laughs> to be like behind the scenes, you know, we're not snatching each other's tiaras and <laughs> slapping each other, you know. The so, drama's on the stage, honey. <laughs> exactly. There you go. And, you know, that's what she did. And of course, she featured myself and three other dancers and how we all have our individual ties in and how we've come to the company. You know, it shows us as individuals and it shows how integrate ourselves into the family that we are at Trucadero. And it gives people otherwise who would never, un, you know, know anything about me other than what they may have seen on the stage for the last two hours when my make my entrances and exits and whatever ballets, they get to just see me as a person out of that medium. And that's kind of nice because that's the one thing that as a dancer, you're not always afforded a voice to be heard and seen, whether you're as an individual or just a member of an organization. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it was a very touching documentary. David and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. She did a great job, did a great job showing what it was like on stage, but also behind the scenes and the, the hard work that and the effort that you all put into creating the shows. Oh, most definitely. We right. work very hard. And I think that's the funny thing that people kind of underestimate about us, you know, because we are first and foremost a dance company. So if anyone, whether you're you know, affiliated or whether you're kind of familiar or not, you know, when you think about most regular ballet dancers, even if you don't know much about them, at least you know one thing that they're working all the time. So I always think, well, why would you think that it would be any less for us? Simply because we are a comedic group for what we do, you really have to know a little bit more than what most people think they know in order to really make fun of it and do it well. And it's not really making fun. It's more of a send up because we revere these works. Mm -hmm. So we're not putting them down. We're putting a twist on them, but we're still keeping that integrity intact. And we're also at the same time being an ambassador for those that are not familiar with dance to those who are. So we cover the spectrum. I will have to say that was one of the things that I, I took away from the film is that what you said, first and foremost, you are dancers. And mm -hmm. some of the comments that were made by individuals who are not a part of the company, but talking about the work that, that the men do, for right. example, taking some of the positions that are traditional positions or traditional moves in dance mm -hmm. and exaggerating those. And the fact right. that it takes so much more strength and stamina to be able to do some of that than what someone who would be part of a traditional troupe would have to do, because that then allows it to shine or that brings the humor out in it. And that humor is because of your strength as dancers, oftentimes, not because you're just putting on a show. It's because of your strength as dancers. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, naturally, look at the variable components involved what we do primarily you know we do have male roles but nobody joins this company to do the male roles <laughs> um uh, and uh so naturally we are doing choreography that is generally set on ladies the thing is that what's more difficult for me i have found is to Recreate movement that is not necessarily imitating, but along the same lines and still make it look delicate, but still 
emphasizing my power as a man. And that's what we do with all of these things. So you could see a regular ballerina do these steps and they would be pretty and they would be fine and they would be great. But when you see the power that comes behind a male dancer doing those moves with that same kind of skill and, you know, that is where it stuns people and it's unexpected. And that's what we do. Very often we ask our uh, followers and listeners to let us know what questions they have for upcoming guests. And we did that for this particular podcast. And one of the respondents was, is a dancer. His name is Terrell. And he asked, mm-hmm. um, the kind of segues into what you were just saying, how did it change your body when you started to dance on point? Because he said to dance on point, to train that way requires different muscles. How did that change for you? How was that? Well, you know, I got a little bit more of an advantage than some of our guys. Nowadays, within, I would say, maybe the last 10 years or so, it is not so uncommon for younger dancers to acquire point shoes, you know, around 13 and 14 as male, young male dancers. And it's not uncommon for their teachers to even train them not necessarily with a goal very much like mine. Not It wasn't the goal for him to send me off to Trocadero one day and turn me into the big drag ballet star. But <laughs> there were benefits to it. So as a young boy, working on regular ballet technique and then adding the, the dynamic of having point shoot helped my feet strengthen, helped their flexibility, uh, helped with my center of balance, and even helped when I began partnering girls, because I was always short and small. So whenever I'd be in partnering class, most of the times I would be one of the girls with my point shoes on being partnered. And so once you learn how to be partnered, then you almost understand what it is to partner someone else once you find their center of balance. So that was a big help. But I won't say that dancing on point as opposed to dancing flat necessarily changes your body so much because you know in ballet all of the steps are exactly the same it is just the implementation that's different and so it's not a matter of using so much different set of muscles it's just understanding how to use your core and and maintaining that because you have to naturally internally shift your center of balance when you're over a smaller base, which is what you're doing when you're in point shoes, as opposed to the ball of the foot. So I don't know. I wouldn't say that it necessarily changes your body, but there are ways to work that can make it a lot easier for you. And the more that you become comfortable and your feet become used to the you know, the point shoes, the the more comfortable you can be with finding your balance and, you know, If you are working improperly, it shows up evidently in the form of an injury. And so the best possible scenario is that you're just a smart dancer and you always observe proper training rules and and stick to them. It sounds like Pilates wouldn't hurt either. (laughs) No, no, exactly. And But I'm just saying it's for – there are so many different ways. I am not the person to tell anyone exactly what is the definitive – one true thing that would be good for them because we're all so different. I have colleagues of mine, some of them do lovely yoga workout and Pilates, and then some of them do nothing. (laughs) So, you know, because it doesn't work for them. So everybody's different. Absolutely. But I do find that as I get older, aside from 
continuing to take ballet classes when I'm off to make sure I stay in shape and watching my diet and so on. I just get exercise in other forms if I'm not, you know, I don't necessarily have to go to the yoga studio or Pilates to get some kind of an exercise outside of dance and keep myself in shape. So continuing with our listener questions, we have Jana who asks, where do you get your shoes? My daughter's feet are huge. <laughs> and, and, and her daughter is, I just want to say her daughter, I think is 13. 13 yeah. I think she's 13 oh, cool. and she's Ooh. as tall as I am. She's 5'11". So she's Great. a very big girl. And and she's not, she's not done growing yet either. No. Um, yeah. So that means she's going to be a tall girl. Well, you know, the beauty of that is nowadays, and specifically for that reason, that I think on an average worldwide, men and women are naturally growing larger. Mm. Women, you know, nowadays, if you go into a shoe store, you'll find larger sizes for women because women are just growing larger. Whereas years ago, everyone was so small and petite and it was very difficult to find. So now dancewear companies and that provide shoes specifically are making larger sizes. I personally, I wear the old Capizio brand. I wear their Aria model, which is good for me. I, for many years at one time, I wore a block shoe, which is an Australian brand. And then when my supplier said that they were no longer stocking that brand, I switched over to Capizio. And so I wear that now. A lot of our guys wear the new shoe, which is very popular everywhere, which is Gainer Mending. They don't work for me. They don't sell them in a size wide enough to accommodate my Flintstone foot. So I stick <laughs> to the, I stick to the Capizios. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So Lynette asks, who are your favorite ballerinas, your favorite muses? Oh, wow. That's a good one. Because I've always been asked when I approach a role, whether it's Odette Swan Lake or Paquita, one of my roles that I'm more or less known for, which ballerina do I get an inspiration from? I, I can't tell you that there's one specific because I do have a few. Evelyn Hart from the Royal Winnipeg Ballet is one of my favorites. And there were a few over the years. Of course, Sylvie M from Paris Opera, Isabelle Gallon. So a lot of the Paris Opera girls I liked, but Evelyn Hart, and not so much because of her physicality and the way that she dances, because she's not what you would consider a bravura type dancer. But it's the fact that she combines the technique and then her acting skills. And it is, you know, a lot of people don't think about the fact that aside from the needing to have the physical perfection of doing the ballet moves right, in order to tell a story, you have to truly be an actor. And I've always been a fan of, you know, many ballerinas that have come and gone in the past, some of them may not have been technicians at all and probably couldn't do a lot of things, but it's just that there's something that they could do a simple movement and you, you're mesmerized. And that's what I admire. And so I try to pick bits and pieces of different ballerinas over the many years and incorporate them when they work together and create my own little thing using those inspirations. So I can't say that I have just one, but there are many. Sure. So to follow up that question, do you or do and does anybody in your troupe take acting lessons? Mm, not that I'm aware of and don't quote me on it because I cannot speak for the others. Sure. Um, 
but I will say that when you, you know, we're a rep company and what I mean by that repertory companies. So we have a large number of ballets within our repertory. You know, we'll switch them in here and there, but for the most part, we kind of stick with the 10 or 12 ballets and they get cycled in and out and mixed and matched here and there. So a lot of them are basic stories that are very common throughout anyone that has had any training with ballet. So you know them. If you just have any little imagination, you can kind of understand the feelings, you know, needed, you know, behind the motivations of whichever character. It's something that comes in, of course, with us, because it's humor, we try to make it very natural. So the way that a colleague of mine may do swan leg and then you'd see me do it the next time we're doing the same template as far as choreography and steps go but our take on it and our our viewpoint as far as the act goes can be completely different and i think that's just something that you mature over time you know there's of course trial and error but a lot of the way that i approach things has sprung out of revelations through my journey and my maturity. So as I've gotten older, I kind of take a different perspective on things. Whereas years ago, I may not have thought so deeply about it. Now something occurs to me and I try to add that dynamic. So for the most part, I'm not sure about anyone else. I know that a lot of these things I kind of bring within from my own thinking about them and researching. Sure, sure. So Natalie asks, how do we get more boys to try ballet and change the stigma of ballet just as a girl sport? Art. Um, Art. Sorry. Art. <laughs> right, right. Exposure. The best way to desensitize sometimes is to saturate. Whereas it was so rare when I was coming up to see ballet in the first place, unless you were actively seeking that out and you were involved in that. Now with the information highway and everybody <laughs> able being able to Google things at their fingertips, you know, exposure. And I'm glad to see that there is a lot more exposure involving the general public, whether it's through outreach or just even YouTube, you know, where people can sit in their living rooms and learn about these things or see these different things. At the same time, you know, it's like a double-edged sword because along with the good stuff that you get from that exposure, we also (laughs) get the bad. Right. And so that's what I try to rise above and pray that if people are going to call themselves informed, even if a little bit on a subject, you know, make sure it's of quality Mm -hmm. and not just somebody that, you know, took two classes and now they consider themselves an expert. And then they've got a whole channel on YouTube trying to teach people. It's like the blind leaving the blind. And then they don't know anything about the history of what they're trying to pass on. And mm-hmm. so a bastardization of something happens and it just gets worse and more convoluted the more it goes down the line. Right. Sure. How do you vet that? How do you know if you're following somebody that's one point, no, no pun intended? <laughs> <laughs> You can pretty much tell within a very short time of conversation, somebody's idea and understanding or lack thereof, depending, at least for me. Sure. And yes, like anybody, artists are all BS artists sometimes. So yes, we can be prone <laughs> to... Madonna we has are, never lied to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're, we're prone to exaggeration uh, and, and so on. 
But more often than not, I always decide, at least in this arena, I always say, you know, enough talk. Let me see what your feet can do. And that will tell me everything. Gotcha. So we've got two more questions. One is from Claudia. Uh -huh. Claudia asks, if you had little to no experience with ballet as a child, is there an opportunity to get involved in it when you're older? Just for oh, fun. Most, oh, most definitely. It's ideal that, you know, people think, yeah, the body's of younger people are more supple. The bones are, you know, amongst children, they haven't set until they're a little bit later. And, you know, there is no rule that says you can't. And now studios, community centers all over give adult classes. And even if it's not strictly ballet or dance, there's, it's a movement that kind of has a rudimentary association with it. And, you know, if people are so driven, it inspires them to kind of seek one more detailed process out, you know, or seek higher education than it if they really are that hooked. It's very easy. Going back to the previous question, you know, it's all about exposure and desensitizing people and making it so that, you know, What's the big deal? If it's something that everybody can enjoy, mm -hmm. the side effects are positive. You get exercise, you get a sense of your body, you get a sense of, you know, being able to move and relate to others in a sense. All right. Michelle, so, Michelle asks a great question for us to close out the show. Where mm -hmm. do you see yourself going or doing after you're done performing? Most likely we'll wind up teaching in some form or another through the trucks. We, as we are affectionately known, our nickname is the trucks. We have now received federal funding grant and we will be starting kind of uh, an exchange program with a couple of organizations here in New York city in the fall. Oh, cool. uh, yeah, we're starting with that. But aside from that, I will be continuing with this company in some form or capacity when I have, retired from the stage, I will, you know, be somewhere within this organization. But if not teaching in general, you know, at a ballet school or or something like that. I feel that that's probably what I will wind up doing. Yeah. You have your own class of boys, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> All dancing on point. Yes. <laughs> right. Or with the opportunity to, I guess. Well, Robert Carter, thank you so much for giving us your time today. This, I think this has been a fun show. Yes. And I thank think, um, you so much for having me. a lot of people. So yeah. thank you. I will have to say, and you know, we talked about this uh, the evening after, just hearing some more of your story just reminds me, especially I think of some of the things that you did early on, the going to Florida or working midnight shift at a youth hostel. Some of the things that we do in life are not the things that are associated with our passion or what we truly love. But if we didn't do them, mm. we may never right. have ended up where we where we want to be. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. They're definitely a means to an end. My thing was, and like many people, which movie star today would not tell you that before they landed that incredible contract with whichever movie, they were waiting tables or you know, mm -hmm. you do what you have to do to survive. And in the meantime, you make the time to consider that priority that you're actually there for and try to find that. You know, I knew it would come. I just had to be patient. But that's what you have to do. Exercise a lot of patience and, 
you know, it helps boost your character too. the work ethic of doing something mundane in order to make yourself prepared and be able to get to where you want to go. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's all about the journey. Yes. Indeed. Yes. Thanks again, Robert. We really appreciate it. The Thank support. you guys. Thank you so much, Bobby, for joining us on this queer money. As you can tell, John and I learned a lot from <laughs> rebels on point about ballet and about the trucks and also about the life of Bobby Carter and the other dancers in the group. We encourage you to check out this awesome documentary when it comes through your LGBT film festival or when it's available through streaming services. And if it's not available, demand it, ask for it, and uh, check out the trailer that you can find on YouTube. We thank Bobby once again for being with us, sharing his awesome story, and we encourage you to continue to live a life that allows you to thrive, just like Bobby did. It may not be easy all the time. Sometimes there are some sacrifices or some changes that we have to make. And remember that in order to be able to do that, we also want to have a financial plan so that we can continue thriving throughout all of our lives. So we encourage you to check out Mass Mutual, our sponsor, as they help us and our community thrive. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. (laughs) (laughs) Would help me if I had a personal chef made all all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead I'll have a Snickers tonight. (laughs) (laughs) The other end, I like the butts, so... (laughs) From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.